Welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. As we start to think about uh, the Christmas season, why we are why we are where we are in church today, uh, why we've come to faith, uh, what instrument and, and, and mechanism and spiritual work has God been doing in us. And uh, that, that's a discussion that we'll, that we'll have to we'll have to have. It's so important for the church in how we are going to function in a practical sense. Uh, this is an exceedingly important topic, exceedingly important. And in ways, it can be the most important topic uh, to guide the sensible work of ministry that we do. Uh, This passage today answers the question for the church that is this, in a practically, in a practical human sense, in a human sense, how do we get people saved? You follow me? I just read a passage that speaks um, volumes about the sovereignty of God and predestination. But what is the machinery involved? How can we know for certain that the activities that we are devoting ourselves to as a church and as Christians, uh, the resources, the time, the talent... How can we know that they're efficacious for God's kingdom? That they will do the work that he has asked us to do. In a nutshell then, what can we do to help others be saved? Well, you would think that you would think that that's a pretty straightforward answer. It would receive a common uh, a common chord uh But that isn't an easily answered question uh, for many. Uh, We're going to learn that depending upon a person's religious tradition or the denomination in which they grew up, how a person gets saved is answered in some surprisingly peculiar ways. Um, Saved, if you are not aware, is a word that is frequently, repeatedly uh, used in the Bible Uh, to describe a person who has been reconciled to God, uh, their sins forgiven. Saved signifies salvation. And it describes we who have been saved uh, and spared eternal damnation. This conversation you can see already is, it's of the utmost importance. Of course, you know, Christians uh, unapologetically insist that God saved us by his grace and through faith. It is a free gift of God. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, uh, not the result of works, lest any man should boast. So there's no boasting to be had on our side. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2 is just one of the many biblical passages that assure that salvation cannot be accessed, uh, nor can it be attained through the work of man. Ours is a a saving faith that 
depends upon or relies on God's unearned favor. Something we don't deserve. It's unearned favor. That's why they call it grace. We didn't deserve it to begin with. It's a gift of God. And in a spiritual transaction, a spiritual transaction, God grants faith in Christ as his free gift. He actually grants us the faith. It includes an invisible work of salvation that we cannot see. It it happens in the heart. But this invisible transaction isn't the element of salvation that I want to discuss today. Um, Neither is the object of our faith, which is Christ himself. He is the object of our faith. He lived a sinless life. Uh, As the Son of God, he willingly died on a cross to bear the sins and the shame that we that we incurred. Uh, of course, his, his work achieved atonement for our sins, satisfaction or propitiation for God's wrath. And his death, burial, and resurrection from the dead are all achieved through his work, and our, and our salvation is dependent upon faith in him. Uh, Jesus is surely the object of our faith, and that is essential for us to know. Uh, That is also not the topic that I want to draw us to today. And neither is the Holy Spirit's sovereign work of regeneration in the human heart. Titus 3 and verse 5 states of God our Savior that he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by his spirit. A spiritual regeneration. Again, it's an invisible work of the Holy Spirit about which the prophet Ezekiel spoke, saying, I will give you a new heart, says God. I will put a new spirit within you. And I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Again, that, that is a work of God. So Titus 3.5 describes this. It's a heart replacement surgery. The divine act of supernatural regeneration. This is also what Christ describes as spiritual rebirth Uh, to the Pharisee named Nicodemus in John chapter 3. As Jesus says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That is referring to our physical birth. But that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And that refers to the supernatural rebirth or spiritual regeneration of our heart. As Jesus says, do not be amazed that I say to you that you must be born again. That's non-negotiable. A spiritual rebirth by the Holy Spirit of God. And all of this must occur. But what mechanism does God use to trigger it? When and how does all this happen? Upon what conditions 
does it work? That is, a, that is an answer given in our earlier scripture reading from Ephesians chapter 1 and in verse 13. It showed us under which circumstances the Holy Spirit decides himself to work. Paul writes to the church there in Ephesus that in Christ you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Christ with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view of, to the redemption of God's own possession and to the praise of his own glory. So pulling all this together, spiritual regeneration is a divine work whereby God grants us faith, gives us a new heart, takes up permanent residence within us by his spirit who seals us as God's own possession. The Holy Spirit uh, places the king's seal upon us, assuring that we belong to him, that we are his possession. That is a non-negotiable as well. And for every Christian who is saved, God has done this. The Holy Spirit lives in us. And for this reason, Ephesians 4 verse 30 states, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Folks, salvation is a work of God that cannot be undone by any work of man. All true believers in Christ are preserved by him until the day of redemption. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature or a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. And Romans 8, 1 says, for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is now no condemnation. And we do not need, or excuse me, we do need to understand that the work of God in the human heart, when a person gets saved, it gives God 100% credit of salvation. We retain no part of credit for our salvation. It is all God's work in us. Well, you could preach at someone till, until you're blue in the face, but if the Holy Spirit is not working in their heart, they've got a deaf ear. They can't hear nor see the things of God. And unless the Spirit is working, nothing will happen. Nothing will happen. God is sovereign over salvation. Um, that's God's work. We can give glory to God for his work in us. But in a practical sense, what is our work? What is our responsibility in all of this? What has God delegated to us in his plan of redemption? What role do we play? Folks, we desperately need to know this. Desperately need to know this because if we don't answer this question right, if we as Christians and as a church don't answer this question right, we're going to make the mistake of devoting massive amounts of time 
talent, treasure into activities where nobody gets saved. So what part do we play? And that question is answered in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul has already described the tremendous spiritual change that has occurred in Thessalonica. Uh, he's assured them that they have been spared from God's wrath. But what role did Paul and Silas play in, in God's work um, in Thessalonica? I follow along as I read uh, the answer beginning in verse 13. Paul writes, For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. For you, brethren, uh, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles, so what? So that they may be saved with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the utmost. Here Paul is revealing that this invisible work of God, this supernatural divine work of his, harnesses a visible work of man. Who'd have thunk it? that we would be delegated with such a task. How did the Thessalonians get saved? They were regenerated when they, by faith, received the word of God which Paul preached. Romans 10 verse 13 tells us that whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed. How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as, is, just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet that bring the good news of good things. And then this summary. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. For anybody to be saved, they must hear the preaching of Christ from Scripture. For people to know who Christ is, we have to preach to them the Word of God. Think about it. The reality is we possess no other record. If we do not preach the Word, how are they possibly going to hear about the redemption that God has given through Christ. The gospel message, it's, it's only found in the Word. And as Paul told the Ephesians, in Christ 
you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were then sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. It's only through the proclaiming of the word of God that anybody ever gets saved. It's the only mechanism that the Holy Spirit employs for spiritual regeneration. There's nothing else. And for some reason, by God's divine design, he trusted that task to us. People must hear the word. They must receive the word. They must believe the word first. Obviously, because you can't exercise faith in somebody of whom you've never heard. God has delegated a great privilege to us in declaring the gospel message of his son. To be saved, people must also receive the scriptures for what they truly are. What they truly are. Not the word of man. Not fairy tales or hobgoblins. Uh, nor a few suggestions from ancient philosophers about how to, how to live life or have a better path of living, but for what the Apostle Paul assures us this truly is. It is the Word of God. It's not the Word of man. You can probably still recall our Scripture reading from last Sunday. It came from the Apostle Peter and in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 23, he writes, oh, this is, this is great stuff right here. You have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The, the grass withers and the flower fades away but the word of the Lord endures forever and Peter says this and this is the word that was preached to you so how do people actually get saved through the word through the word how are they born again Peter says in 2 Peter 1 and verse 16 for we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. A few verses later, Peter says, regard the patience of our Lord. Maybe he's been patient with some of us here today. Regard the patience of our Lord as salvation just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you, uh, as also in all his letters, speaking of the Apostle Paul, in which are some things hard to understand, uh, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures. 
So the apostle Peter, who was an eyewitness to Christ's resurrection, he classifies the apostle Paul's writings as Holy Scripture. It's the written word of God. It didn't come from man. And we are saved through the teaching and the preaching of these same scriptures. This is how everyone who has ever been saved has been saved. It is impossible to be saved from your sins without hearing and receiving this for what it is, the very word of God. The Bible is the word of God. This is the very reason why in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 15, it was the unbelieving Jews, those who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets. And Paul reminds his readers, these are the same ones who drove us out of Jerusalem. And they drove us out of Thessalonica. And they've been driving us out from everywhere we go with this message. And remember how in Acts chapter 17, Paul and Silas, they had to flee for their lives in order to exit Thessalonica. They had to run from the Jews by the cover of darkness. Verse 15 of our passage says that such men are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men. Well, hostile in what way? Verse 16 says they, referring again to the unbelieving Jews, it is they who hindered us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. It's the only way anybody ever gets saved. Folks, there is a cosmic battle, a cosmic spiritual battle that is occurring. Every day, as we speak today, there is a cosmic spiritual battle over the word of God. It's because this is, this is the only word that saves. It's, it's all there is. It's the only way anyone can be saved. Satan realizes that, that nobody ever exercises faith in Christ without hearing about him. Therefore, the enemies of Christ do all that they can to hinder the preaching of the Word of God, the teaching of the Word of God, the sharing of the Word of God. You can get a pretty good bead on people's spirituality by how they react to the Word of God. Their disposition to the Word of God. Uh, many remain suspicious of it, thinking, yeah, I think maybe that's just some words of men. But Christians embrace it as God's holy word, spoken directly by him. As the apostle Peter assures us, no prophecy of scripture was ever made by an act of the human will. But holy men of God spoke as they are moved by the Holy Ghost. 2 Timothy 3 verse 16, all scripture is God-breathed. comes directly from him. In Psalm 19, verse 7, there's a, there's a good song we made out of that psalm. It assures us that the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, 
making the wise simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. And the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. But unbelievers are unwilling to accept the word of God for what it truly is. And they work to hinder Christians from speaking it and proclaiming it. It was just a couple weeks ago in youth group that I was um, sharing with uh, sharing with that class, that youth group class. I uh, I quoted a few of the Ten Commandments, right? The Ten Commandments with the youth group, and, and here we go. You ready? You shall not steal. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not bear false witness or lie in your testimony. Uh, don't covet people's stuff. And I stated, I stated how aren't, aren't these just beautiful standards by which a culture can live by? The complete beautiful word of God uh, that any healthy society can benefit from. So then how bizarre is it that numerous political factions and religious groups in our country want to silence the Ten Commandments. Think about that. Do not steal. Do not murder. Do not lie. Do not covet. And they want to cut that off. It's crazy. What kind of sick, degenerated people don't want to live by these rules. Instead, we see that they want to dismantle any statue or memorial of any kind on which they're written. The beautiful word of God. It's how a healthy society should function. And the reason they oppose is they know that the public posting of the law it puts our sins on full display shows us what we are in our heart we're adulterers at heart and thereby they serve as a tutor to lead us to faith which is in Christ Jesus that way we can be justified by grace that's what the law does it shows us our failures Ten Commandments show us, well, you ain't never kept all them. We're like, man, i got to find a solution. If this is the measure by which God accepts man, I've got to find a solution because I have not kept these. It's a wonderful thing. It's the Word of God that prompts salvation. And the posting of this Word, the sharing of the Word, the sowing of the seed of the word. It's very, very powerful. Incredibly powerful. Um, most people, at least in the West, most people have heard that Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead. Most people have heard that. Uh, many of us growing up in different denominations recited uh, the creeds, the Nicene Creed, learned uh, week after week. We heard it again and again what Christ has done. So that seed is sown. 
It's sown within us. It's sown within our culture. Therefore, God can use our simplest sharing of the word, any part of the word, and God can flip the switch. And back when I was a, a good little Lutheran boy, we used to make fun of those, you know, those born-again Christians. You know, the ones that Hollywood portrays as fanatics. And we are certain we didn't want to become one of them. Boy, little did we know. You must be born again. But I was forced as a youth to memorize the Ten Commandments, and what I immediately recognized is this. I don't keep these. If keeping these is how I'm supposed to be saved from hell, I'm literally going to be toast in a literal sense. And even though I had recited the gospel through the creeds in church each Sunday, I still couldn't figure it out. Why? Because the invisible work had not yet gone on. God had not yet worked by his spirit in my heart. Then I heard a man preaching on the radio about how God literally parted the Red Sea. The Israelites passed through on dry land, and that, that's when the Holy Spirit flicked the switch for me. And I said, of course. How else could Israel be saved? And if God can literally raise his son from the dead, which he did... That's a non-negotiable for a Christian. Then God can do everything else. He can do anything. And the Holy Spirit then regenerated my heart and saved me through hearing the word of God. The gospel was already there. I just didn't have faith. You know, God could have probably saved me by watching Charlton Heston and the Ten Commandments. Maybe. But that movie's creator portrayed that all as cinema. While the preacher that I heard on the radio portrayed it as the very word of God. Not the word of men. But for what it really is. Um, folks, nobody ever gets saved by casting doubt on the veracity of God's word. Nobody gets saved that way. But that is what the enemies do. Therefore, Paul warned Timothy to not be like them. Instead, he says, until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching, 1 Timothy 4.13. And then he tells Timothy, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Salvation comes by hearing. Folks, since I know I'm preaching, I'm setting you up, you know that, right? I know I'm preaching to the choir in a lot of this. I had to clarify at the beginning, we know it's a, it's a divine work. 
that God supernaturally does in our heart, that we, we don't take too big a role in the preaching. And then we talk about the preaching, the sharing, as you share and you preach and teach to others as well. Um, and proclaiming that the scriptures is the only way anyone gets saved. Uh, think about that. Why then would we focus our time, talent, or treasure on anything else? And as I stated at the beginning, Paul didn't merely want Thessalonica to know that they were saved. He wanted them to know how they are saved because he didn't want churches to pour excessive energy into alternate ideas about how people become saved. You follow me? And if a pastor is not fully convinced that faith only comes through hearing and only through hearing the word of Christ, he will eventually succumb to pressure to stop preaching the word. And a church will start substituting other methods where people think we become Christians. Other methods. Folks, the following list is not exhaustive, uh, but here are just a few examples. I may ruffle a few feathers here. That's okay. okay. Um, the first is this. Um, if, if a church, and, and that's the individual church's choice, if the church chooses to do altar calls, and if they have the freedom to do that, if they choose to do altar calls, the pastor needs to remain very clear that the act of you coming forward did not save you. Didn't make you a Christian just walking forward. Also reciting a, a sinner's prayer, that alone doesn't make you a Christian. Many people you will witness to today, and I hope that you have encountered because it's so prevalent, that means you're witnessing. Many will say, yeah, you know, when I was young, yeah, I went forward at church one Sunday, and pastor even had me say a prayer there at the end, and, and he, he just declared I was saved. And you ask them, so how are you doing? Ah, you know, I'm saved. I, I don't get to church anymore. And, and, uh, but, but I did it. I did it. And such people base salvation on a response to an emotional plea. Now our pleas ought to be a little bit emotional. Not faulting that at all. But a problem arises in church if it becomes groomed to thinking, people get saved by coming forward. If that happens, a pastor's performance is going to be judged on whether or not he can continue to find inspiring, creative ways to entice people to come forward rather than his preaching of the Word of God that actually saves. Follow me? Calling for a response while preaching is biblical. We should respond. Uh, we call people to respond here by 
trusting Christ right from your seat. That's how we do it. It avoids confusion for us. Um, but scores of people, scores of people have walked aisles and recited prayers who have never believed the word of God. Not all, and I'm not here to cast shade on, on some of our brothers and sisters in Christ at all in this. I'm going to say not all, but some place an enormous level of focus on finding creative ways to get people to walk down the aisle. Enormous levels of focus. Another one is that people are saved through uttering unintelligible babble. It's falsely identified as tongues. Some here have been in churches that place an enormous emphasis on teaching people to gibber. They neglect the word of God because they mistakenly think that uttering gibberish is how people get saved. You couldn't make this stuff up, but they do. Here's another prevalent error that I grew up with. Here it is. You ready for this one? Just treat people nicely. Eventually, they'll want to come to church, and eventually, they'll want to be Christians just like us. Avoid the word that may offend them. It may drive some people away. Avoid that. And instead, just be really, really nice. I'm not exaggerating. Folks, massive quantities of time and resources have been converted to relief supplies, delivered to poor nations, in place of the word of God. It's because some churches have concluded that if we just be nice, that if we just feed the poor and they, they know where the food came from, that people will somehow eventually learn to love Jesus. But people don't come to Jesus through eating food. They must hear the gospel. Jesus himself proved this during his ministry that, that feeding them just doesn't work. Doesn't work. He fed 5,000 you know, soon afterward in John chapter 6 uh, when he called that crowd into a deeper level of commitment, a serious level of commitment to Christ. Oh, they deserted Jesus. The scripture says that they no longer walked with him. The feeding of the 5,000, well, it didn't take. It didn't take. And though we show God's compassion when we have the opportunity, oh, yes, we do, we never see poverty relief. We never see po poverty relief elevated as an evangelism method by Paul or the other apostles. They preached the word. When John and James and Paul and the others do take collections for the poor, which we do here, where do they say that we should direct those funds? You already know. 
to Christians. Not to unbelievers, but to believers. Our brothers and sisters in Christ in, in poor nations who don't have enough and they belong to God and they're His possession. Our relief is to predominantly be directed to other Christians whom love the Lord. Folks, no amount of money, no amount of money or food can buy people's way into heaven. They have to have their heart changed. By the Holy Spirit, they must be convicted that they're sinners and made hungry for the forgiveness that comes through the Word. That's how people get saved. Then we feed them. As we spoke last week, we feed them with the milk and the meat of the Word. All of our poverty relief must at minimum carry the good news of the gospel has to carry the gospel you see how churches can get distracted all kinds of things that they do that don't add anybody to the kingdom there are many other methods by which people think they get saved but are never found in the bible some think they're, they're born into christianity yeah, my parents were Christian. We've always been Christians. I was just born and we've just been Christians. But I want to share just one more that I grew up with myself as we close. And, and this is important as this next Sunday we are going to perform water baptisms next week. I was taught growing up that we become Christians not by the preaching of the word and baptism of the Holy Spirit, but through baptism in water. Many people mistakenly think that they are saved because they were baptized in water. And rather than spiritual regeneration, this is often what theologians describe as baptismal regeneration, right? Right? an error it's an error if churches believe this they're going to replace the preaching of the word by placing an enormous influence on people getting wet therefore many of these practice infant baptism but uh, folks plenty of baptist circles do the same thing they just don't do it with infants and they place too much emphasis on the water over the word. Let's just get people wet. We don't race to that around here. Folks, this is a critical misunderstanding. I was baptized as an infant, right? I've been baptized as a believer, but I was baptized as an infant. And in my late teens, having a, a crisis and a fear of death, I asked my mom that if I died, how could I know I would go to heaven, right? Who hasn't asked that? And she replied, you know because you were baptized in a Lutheran church. Now, Martin Luther did not believe that. And my mother could, to show grace, she could only respond with what she was taught. 
So biblical teaching is supremely important. Fortunately, my mother, uh, as she got later in life, her and my father both uh, changed under the, God directed their divine circumstances. Uh, they changed to another Lutheran church that had a gospel preacher. And they taught her what Luther actually believed, that water baptism without faith in Christ is just water. That's all it is. But my family's church had set aside the word of God and, and started teaching sacramentalism that means that you are saved through a religious ceremony. Many grew up in this. Many here did. And rather than grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone through scripture alone, sola scriptura, by the word alone, um, that was the battle cry of the Reformation, by the way, sola scriptura, scripture alone. Uh, rather than that, they've turned to sacramentalism. As a reference, I saved one of our old liturgical hymnals. Right? Some of you are probably thinking, yeah, I don't know if I believe them. I, I know you believe me. This is from the church that I grew up in. This week, since we're doing baptism, I looked up their old sacramental rite of baptism, uh, holy baptism. And this is what the pastor says when baptizing infants, all right? God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we give thanks for freeing your sons and daughters from the power of sin and for raising them up to new life through this holy sacrament. Pour your Holy Spirit upon, enter name here, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, the spirit of joy in your presence. And then it says, starting off with the name of the child, it says, John Paul, this is what the pastor would have said, John Paul, child of God, you have been sealed by the Holy Spirit and marked with the cross of Christ forever. No, 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 no. Folks, that's how severe it can get. That it's not through faith, but it's through a sacrament of baptism. That, that is a critical error that is very prevalent, very prevalent. Paul's concern that churches like Thessalonica know how they were saved uh, because if they don't, churches will adopt all kinds of alternatives. Lots of substitute ideas and what we will believe will affect how a church will function. Um, we have three. We have three who out of their own volition, out of their desire, want to profess that in harmony with Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13, they have now listened to the message of truth. They have identified it as the gospel of salvation. They profess they have believed it, and they know that through faith in Christ, they have been sealed by the Holy Spirit of God unto redemption. 
So I'm going to ask them to respond. But not by coming to the front of the church. I'm going to ask them to respond through holy baptism. And uh, I'm not going to demand them to speak in unintelligible gibberish or any other thing. Instead, I'm going to, what I'm going to do is I'm going to invite them to do what Christians have always done, profess their belief in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ through being placed down into the water to signify that they have died to themselves below the water, that they have been cleansed from their sins through faith, and that they have been risen up again in new life with Christ. Folks, that is what water baptism is. It's all it is. They symbol that we have died to self, we have been cleansed in the washing and regeneration of the Holy Spirit, and that Christ has raised us up again. That's it. If this also describes you, if you want to join these three men, and you meet those criteria, I'd like to see you afterwards. Let's pray.